Welcome to the 55 Safe Spaces podcast, hosted by Sylvia and Rimbi. Hello, everyone. So today we have an awesome guest um, to take our interview today. Her name is Fiona Gabanga. She's from Zimbabwe. And she's really doing amazing things within the health sector, including her private life. <laughs> and she's our special guest today. Yeah, we are so excited to have you, Fiona. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> yes. Thank you for honoring us with your time. Yes. So tell us a bit about yourself, Fiona. Okay. So I, I'm from Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, I grew up in Mutare which is like on the eastern part of the country for the first nine years of my life. And then I grew up in Harare. So that's where I did my uh, the rest of my education until like end of high school. And then in my A-levels, mm-hmm. um, I was fortunate enough to be selected as part of a program called USAP, United States Achievers Program. That's with, uh, within, was it an embassy scholarship? So... Not necessarily. US embassy scholarship. It was through the U.S. embassy at the time. This is twenty two thousand nine two thousand ten. The program was it was founded outside out of the U.S. embassy. Okay. But it is like now it runs as its own nonprofit called Education Matters. But at the time we were housed in the U.S. embassy, and what the program did is they, it was like an a college access program which basically looked for high achieving low income students who had done well in the O levels and then guided them with free mm. resources to mm-hmm. apply to different universities in the U.S. That's amazing. So cool. But you know what? You know, this is for the global world, right? Yeah. All levels yeah. does not um, make sense. So all levels somebody, is like... What's the equivalent what is, in the yeah. UK? In the U.S., it's like the end of middle school. Okay, in the U.K., that's the it's GCSE, 16. Yeah, it's 16. year 10, year yeah. 11. Yeah. Yeah. So the same and, and Kenya have are the, the same, system. yeah. So yeah. at that phase, I had gotten like straight A's. So that's what kind of like, so they took exactly high achieving, low income students based off of a combination of things. But, you know, the high achieving part really came from your academic results. Was that a selection? Were they coming to institution to pick those students or you had to apply? We had to apply. I don't even know. I think our school was definitely is just known for good results. We got like we're in the top whatever of the country. Which school is At the time I was at St. Dominic's to Shawasha. Uh, shout Saint out Dom. shout out Sindom. Santa I feel left out because I don't know what that is but it's yeah. just an old girls uh, Catholic high school uh, about 45 minutes outside of Harare mm-hmm. it's a boarding school like you know Harare but go on <laughs> but I'm just saying it's like a boarding school like any other I'm gonna visit mission school in yeah. like you know so we they had like the applications go out to a lot of like schools that they knew they would get a lot of students who are like straight A kids or high performers mm. or leaders. Mm. So I managed to get a copy of it somehow. I don't remember. And then I remember like, I didn't even want to apply at the time. I was like, I don't even think this is me. What? America. I don't even have what it takes. It's like you already <laughs> driven before. And know. then my brother's actually the one who was like, no, just give it a shot. Just take a look. And yes, you, you submit your, all your results from high school. And then you write like personal statements. Yeah. And you basically like, you tell your life story. What are your ambitions? Are you like a leader in your school? So at the time I was like a prefect. I you know, was in debate and did a bunch of other things. So that also helped my application. So they only choose like out of 
I think close to a thousand applications a year they take at the time they were only taking 30 whoa so i was chosen chosen out of like the 950 to be part of 30 that was very competitive oh, wow. uh so i became part of usup in 2010 yeah wow. and then started the college application process i had to like study for the sat and ended up going to Bryn Mawr college in the u.s but in you 2011 know, it's so funny like do you find it strange like given that you're zimbabwean you know how we are taught english you mm. had to sit an english exam which doesn't make sense yeah, I mean, you have to. I mean, for SAT, yeah, right? Because SAT is like critical reading, writing, and math. So, yeah. yes, we had to sit for English, but we didn't have to take the TOEFL, though. Okay, so you know, we were exempted you know the, from the that. origins of SAT sort of has like some racist Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't, be, I don't <laughs> personally believe in, in testing. I don't think, you know, personally, I'm not even a great tester. Yeah. Um, I was just like right at the average that was needed for me to, you know, enough for you to to get in. But I didn't it. like. I feel like I excel better in situations where I show my growth and intelligence over time. But that's yeah. a, a whole other conversation on like how college <laughs> access is is racist it's limited, and yeah. it limits people because you know SAT is just one day and it's six hours. Yeah, exactly, that really yeah. can't be a, a show limited, of like yeah. a person's whole like growth over like six years in high school for example very, but very true mm-hmm. so in all of that then so how did you then i guess find your passion and then wh- how did you figure out this is what you're going to apply for in this opportunity right. yeah. mm. and what did you go on and apply for and where did you end up finding yourself at so yeah. for me the passion i mean i'm trying to think where i was when i was 18 <laughs> <laughs> was like 10 years ago i mean for me the passion has always been public health oh wow so it started way back way back i just didn't how know how did you start i didn't back? even know it was did i mean i didn't have, them. have anything to do with it yes i remember when i was like well even like i know like even reading from my personal statements for graduate school or even when i apply for fellowships and things like that for me i go back to the HIV epidemic in oh, yeah. 98, 99, 2000. I was like in eight Zimbabwe. in Zimbabwe. Okay. And just, I mean, I remember in, at schools at the time we were being taught there's this thing called HIV. The same thing that's happening with COVID right now is right. right. So there's little information at the time. We're being taught there's this thing, don't share needles, don't share razor blades. Mm. Um, sometimes a mom can give birth public to a baby. Right, so it was like public health 101. We didn't call it public health at the time. We were just being taught in the general education curriculum as third graders. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, because I excelled at school or whatever, at some point when I was in sixth grade in primary school, they needed people to be, like the Ministry of Health and Education were like, we're going to do this peer education program. So we need mm. peer educators. So we'll pick like right. two kids from each class, the smartest. Okay. We'll train them in this HIV curriculum. And then they go back and they can start she HIV clubs. So I got picked. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I got picked in, high, in primary school at like age 11. Whoa. Went okay. to like this training, three days. They taught us like the basic science of HIV. Uh-huh. We came back, we started like a peer education club. And it started out oh, being for the, rest of the for the rest of the students. So it started out being about HIV, but we also did things like awareness against violence, like gender-based violence or violence at home, like helping oh, if they're orphanages. Where, where became women, right. So it was definitely women. yeah. It definitely started at that young age, and we had like I remember at a 
high school and primary school teacher, Mr. Masango, who was really supportive Shout and helped out to Mr. Masango. <laughs> Shout out to him. So we started that club with him on sixth grade, seventh grade, left primary school, went to high school. And I think from, I remember, I, I think also in seventh grade, it was World AIDS Day, December 1st. Yeah. Uh, again, they would always, whenever the, all these Minister of Education and Minister of Health um, events, they would always pick two, three kids from each class or representatives. So and the teachers. It's so weird how you have. All these mental images of everything that happened. I don't <laughs> because I've thought of, no, because I've really sat down to think about my passion and like where it's coming from and why it matters to me now. So yeah. I remember that, I think for me, that World Days Day, I think it was either 2003 or 2004. Right. And that, I also wrote poems. <laughs> As I remember writing, I think that was it's the very point. necessary to go through life, man. So I wrote a poem about HIV and ended up performing one of my poems at this World AIDS Day thing. And then we were part of this procession. And, you know, for World AIDS Day each year, there's a theme and right. things like that. But we were just representatives. I, say, I read out, recited my poem, mm. you know, and that was it. But I remember being moved as part of that procession and being nice. part of this national Feeling thing. Feeling part of something. Right. And thinking, and I was like, who gets to say that December 1 is World AIDS Day? Right. You know. Who gets to say that HIV is the thing we should be worrying about? So mm-hmm. I was just always like, I want to be that person. I remember thinking to myself, who is this person? And, like, and I, mean, I mean, it's the WHO, right? It's, yeah. it's these multilateral global health organizations, really. That's, and they come so up with like, the agenda. So I way. knew, but I'd still I didn't really do anything about it. And then because you're smart, you go to high school, you keep doing straight A's. You get put in sciences. You get put mm. in sciences, everybody starts telling you you're going to be a doctor. Yeah. Or an engineer. Or like, or yeah, so I just kind of, and I enjoyed biology. It's still something that I enjoy and care about. So people mm. just kind of pushed me. And even A-Love, I did math, biology, and chemistry. Yeah. Mm. And I, I did care about them. So people would just assume you're going to go to med school or you're going to be a pharmacist or you go into something engineering. Like, but what yeah, I find peculiar mm-hmm. right now, for me personally, is just hearing this, how this journey started at 11 years old. As yeah. I said to you prior to the interview, one. I stalked your ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you're my friend, but I'm always surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but what you're doing and what you're about, you know, because... You never it's even a, talk about it. Exactly. Enough. You've got a calmness about your presence, yeah. which is bossy in its nature. Uh, <laughs> it's so nice. You yeah. don't know you don't need to know the full details, but you're inspired, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But what I found becu- like amazing for me is like from eleven years old and HIV and also as I can recognize as mm-hmm. you know, as being Zimbabwe, you feel so comfortable. I know mm. you can be pregnant and HIV positive. Like and I know that you know, but I know Know that's the access of privilege of information that maybe yeah. the average person in Wouldn't rural communities might never, not have. No. Yeah. But what I find so inspiring is started at eleven years old. Yeah, and good. today but we're in COVID. <laughs> and today how inspiring COVID. is that? Yeah. Today we're how does COVID. it feel? How does it feel to pandemic? be now another pandemic and you're doing what you're doing? Honestly, Something that you started uh, as poetry <laughs> as eleven. Yeah. Now you're working. Honestly, it's both. I think it's like both exciting. I remember like telling my boss when we when the lockdown happened in March in Rwanda, mm-hmm. and honestly in the rest of the world, it was so hard because it was both like 
like a fulfillment like like a fulfillment of like this is i'm where i'm supposed to be i am doing what i'm supposed to be doing like this is what i trained for in graduate school this is Mm. my whole life has been building up to this Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's a tragedy it doesn't take away from the fact that people are still being infected by covid people People are are dying dying, right so i think it's hard being in fields where the work you do is literally life and death situation, but it's almost like as your career or your life, it's at the fringes of right? all those yeah. things. Grows. Yeah. It's almost as if it's like a part of me feels guilty because I'm like, oh, it's growing because there's this tragedy that's happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah right? sort of right. So my fulfill- the fulfillment of my career is the need for public health services and functional mm. governments that are providing mm. care to people. That's amazing. Yeah. And one thing that that's... I also find amazing is like. Mm-hmm. You currently work for the Clinton Health, uh, Clinton Health Initiative. Mm-hmm. What's I, the A Alliance. Access. access. Clinton Health Access <laughs> Initiative. Yeah. 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 Chai. yeah. Um, oh, it's not kind. We know. We Chai. all know Bill <laughs> and Hillary Clinton. That's global health. You yeah. know, yeah. market leaders. And I'm thinking Zimbabwe is so small. Like <laughs> when you put countries in chronological order, Zimbabwe yeah. is bottom you know in terms of it's, what though in terms of no just letters you know but then to come from somewhere like zimbabwe and then mm. you find yourself a child tell us a bit about that journey and what it means for you and yeah. 11 year old doing poetry <laughs> I do you ever think you learned such an opportunity? I, you deserve to be there, by right. the way. Right. But Thank then, you. did you ever have any doubts that you'd get such? Honestly, um, <laughs> it's so funny because being in a I never position, thought that far. I really. <laughs> I mean, I remember at 11 thinking, I want to be the person who decides what's the top five things we should be worrying about in health. Right. But I didn't do anything about it after that. I mean, yes, yeah. it's, it's so interesting how, like, I think the, the piece of advice there would be, like, do the work. And, like, mm. your, like, not destiny, but, like, your purpose will find you. And you're already working in your purpose. Because when exactly. I was a straight A kid in high school and Zimbabwe's economy was crashing down, I didn't, honestly, I never thought beyond my next exams. Right. I didn't even really, I because know. You never had any hope. I didn't, honestly, like our economy wasn't working. Yeah. Unless you're connected to somebody who's connected, you didn't really see anything beyond. Like I didn't think, I was like, oh, at best case scenario, maybe I could get a scholarship or my parents could put something together and I can go to the University of Zimbabwe. Right. Like that was the best case scenario for me. Dream. That was the dream. Like if mm. I could do that, that would have been amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. You said outside our <laughs> fraudulent degrees we've issued, it's actually yeah. a top. It's a top institution yeah. and it is a reputable place. And like yeah. all yeah. of my friends did, like when I look at my peers who I went to school with, that's uh-huh. where they went to have their education. So I yeah. think that was the pre, like the expected or predetermined path as I was doing my mm-hmm. high school. Mm. But that even wasn't guaranteed because my mom was retired, my dad was out of work. Mm-hmm. So even that wasn't determined. So USAP for me and getting that, getting to be part of the USAP program. And then getting mentors and people guide me to getting like the scholarship to then go to the U.S. was my pivotal moment. Yeah. And that changed like the rest of my life, really. That's good. So it's... mentors matter a lot. Yeah. Because yeah. then I, I like I met people who had were doing things that I was like, oh, OK, it's not because for me, it was never medicine. So to see people who are not in medicine and having impact in the health sector. Right. 
was the first because everybody yeah. else I knew was a medical doctor or pharmacist. So mm-hmm. it was the first time I was like, okay, I think I want to do what she does. But actually, it wasn't. I don't want to do social work. But, then it's, <laughs> but it, it, it being exposed to, to things broader than, I guess, my lived experience came out of being able to study in the U.S. Yeah, Which and is, um, yeah. yeah. And so, I sort of feel like that is basically everybody's journey. Which is so true. Because even for you, Sylvia, you can Mm -hmm. recognize with that. Like, I know a lot of times you used to say, like, when you went to the U.S. and being exposed to the tech in the U.S., that you could see the potential for For the African continent. And then you started a startup based on that. It's all about the African continent. Yeah. You find that if you're putting yourself in that position, you end up crossing paths with people who sort of guide you. I did. I wanted to uh, to piggyback on that. Did um, Colombia play a role in that? I know. Oh, it's definitely. A, it's a I mean, it's I an mean, Ivy League, first of all. <laughs> Ivy League. I mean, for sure. I don't know. Colombia didn't correct. Colombia. I'm on audio. I yeah. could be wrong right now. University of Colombia. <laughs> Shit. In the city of New York. Yeah. Did I, I actually Obama go to that uni? Yes. Yeah, he did yes, undergrad. Yes, was right. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Obama did his undergrad at Columbia. You finished, yeah, his yeah. bachelor's you, degree. You went to the... You were <laughs> alumni with Obama. <laughs> Yo! I mean, sure, yeah. yes. I was actually accepted to Columbia. I rejected them. I went to CMU. Yeah, you Obama told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then everyone else is like, Obama goes there. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> but I can see that. But for me, going to Columbia was... By the time I even Did got into Colombia, definitely. I, I mean, I mean, it also depends what you're looking to get. Like, even within the field of public health, it depends what you're looking to do with your degree. Are you looking but to work? But definitely the networks helped. I mean, it dep- like, if you're looking at, to look at, work at the um, local level, because public health is multiple levels, right? Yeah. You, even we, everybody has been forced to learn that with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. it's at the city level. It's at the even here in Rwanda, right? It's the district. It's the twenty-seven districts in Rwanda. Yes, yeah. that's where the cases are. So a person who's doing public health can be working at that district level. They can be working at the intra-district level and be in charge of all those districts. Mm-hmm. They can be working at a national level, at Ministry of Health, at RBC, yeah. and wow. running at that. And then that. you have people who Ooh. are part of regional things, like same thing with WHO. It has regional offices, mm-hmm. and then yeah. So for me, I've always known I care about the African continent. I want to work at a global level. Now, yeah. that's very Queen. powerful. <laughs> yes. And that's yeah. very... So I was very like... I got into like 10, 11 programs for graduate school. Right. And I was very strategic about which programs I chose because I, I knew where I wanted... To, I looked at the alumni and where they end up in... And not like in the five okay, years. Let's, let's yeah. back up. <laughs> let's back up. You, you're talking about a program that enabled you to come back to the African continent because it's mostly very hard for but before we Africans get there, or diaspora Africans come to back come to back. the African yeah. continent. So as before we get to that point, yeah. mm-hmm. to also touch on the same point, you kind of have mm-hmm. to address it as the same. Mm-hmm. Right. We've got two hosts here, so they'll have multiple questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, oh, yeah. don't go too long. Oh, you know. Looking at this and you're saying, oh, it's just intentional right it's very intentional yeah but then you literally served as the director of programming for the women for women you know so how do you go from there at a big uni in the states from a low income uh you know country on terms of paper because corruptionism is big if you we see ferraris in streets so i don't know about everybody else but (laughs) ranges there's just no enough distribution of wealth Right. right yeah but to go from there 
and be where you are and then touching on on coming back home on coming, coming back, back home, home. Yeah. homecoming yeah i mean for and me it's for me it's like it was always even when i remember like with my close friends when i got this job cuz mm-hmm. i graduated in may and i moved here less than like 3 weeks after that wow cuz i got the job yeah i graduated so end of may so what was your first african country you worked in coming back from grad school yes yeah. okay but for my friends they were like yeah <laughs> because it's and it's so funny cuz for me i've always known i want to work in global health because i want to work on work that impacts african people's health and lives particularly mm-hmm. women and children mm-hmm. i think i came to that because my undergrad was at an all women's college okay. so i like my feminism and my identity and the things i care for were molded i mean i'd always cared about that but i think my undergrad Brynmar specifically gave me the words and 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 like space What to question to, yeah. and like really def- redefine my purpose and like kind of fine tune it so i knew it was women's health i knew women in zimbabwe in kenya in rwanda Africa, are dying Africa, more than in any other place in the world i knew children's health is like if we can figure out a way to end like measles or things like that then we would be we would like it's a path for development in african countries mm-hmm So the, so it was inspiring. I feel like there were small pieces of me that like built into each other until mm-hmm. I got there you know <laughs> So like I don't know if you asked me at 18 when I was studying my undergrad no I didn't really think I'm going to end up in Rwanda working for a global health NGO mm-hmm. But if you had asked me do I care about women's health my answer would have been yes do I care about the choices that women are forced to make under patriarchy that impact their health i cared about that mm. i just didn't have the words for them at that point i just didn't i wasn't able to form those sentences in the same way that i just did now but then my undergraduate degree going to colombia seeing mm-hmm. professors who were doing research in the countries that i wanted to work in finding words for it and being like i want to be that african woman's voice right. doing that research it's so funny like you know that's so inspiring at the same time is, yeah. but then being that this week we had a situation of a professor that mm-hmm. cloned to be black in the oh, GW, yeah. yeah yeah what's her name time. again jessica something crook crook you yeah. know she cloned on it and in your experience in your perspective how much do you think that affects this journey of And affects your work your work and you even like young people mm-hmm. going into the education system and the academia system with bigger dreams outside academia how are they affected then when there's women that can clone to be something and you're inspired sort of i mean it's ins- i think my knee jerk reaction is like it's insulting it's very mm. insulting i think there's more i mean academia is all about like just like global health and like development all goes back to the money right it all goes back to trying resources. to get tenure and all those things the money goes back to who's giving it and for me yes one it's insulting and two the key takeaway would be occupy all spaces mm-hmm. for me when i look at um i don't know we used to, i laugh with my, one of my other like friends slash mentors and we're always laughing at like I don't know a different grant comes out or something comes out yeah and then you see like there's like 20 people who are bidding for a grant on uh now it's the thing is right now it's not even PMTC we're looking at eliminating mother to child trans- transmission HIV positive women mm. of the 20 maybe two have actually lived more than two years yeah. in Africa 
That's right? crazy. And, and, and uh, it's like a guy who has been uh, on tenure track at London School of Hygiene and Medicine. Or, right? So it's for us, we always talk, look at that and go like, no. Mm-hmm. And the only way to kind of like beat the system. Is have more of us in the system. It's just to like inject more people. Because like Do you nobody think policy can, can change anything? Or it could, but like who, who gives who, the money? Like to be able to even change policy, you have to be in that system, right? I can't. Right. I can challenge Colombia because I'm an alumni. I've gone yeah. there. I can tell them I want to see more diversity on your board mm-hmm. and I don't appreciate the lack of diversity in the people who are dispersing grants. Mm-hmm. I can't do that from the outside. So if you that's, want, that's, that's you that's have true. to, unfortunately, you have to get into the system and then challenge it. And whether it's at a policy level or whether it's at saying, I'm going to be that one who bids for that grant. Mm. Right? Because nobody can tell our stories the, way, more, the, the way, more than the we, we we've best. lived it. We yeah. know... The experience but we get you know it's always the funny joke of like why is it all departments of like african studies or whatever are based outside in the conferences are outside so the continent so right the case. and it's the same thing in global health so you hilarious. have big things they're all funded by external funders yeah and they're all hosted outside and we can change that so for me it, it's insulting but it provokes me to to want to do more mm. and to change that narrative, kind of. That's very That's, true. And yeah. I, I like that because at the same time, I also feel there's also the element of like, sometimes we don't like what's happening, but we can see the appreciation, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For example, you talk about when you were so young at 11 years old, we were dealing with right. AIDS, right? Yeah. That also gave highlights to a lot of highlights to a lot of things from exactly. malaria to Ebola mm-hmm. and whatever. To all and the diseases. now, how Africa has handled COVID? It's better. It's a different level, making, right? Making people wonder why yeah. we're not dying. So, I didn't <laughs> yeah. say that, but I was thinking, I work on Zambia and Malawi. I know what Rwanda is doing they for COVID. Hire Malawi. me to write, write an article about what Africa is doing right. And you can learn from that. Don't even have hire... Foreign, foreign yeah. um, scientists yeah. to tell you that we don't know why Africans are not dying. No, hire the experts. Have... Call the director, the director of RDB. Jeez. Call the minister of health of Rwanda and yeah. ask them, why is it you've only had, in the space of how many months, less than 20 deaths in Rwanda? How many people have died in in every other country? It's actually insulting because (laughs) when I look at where we are right now in Rwanda, for example, Mm. Rwanda is very, for those that don't know, it's Mm -hmm. close to Congo, it's close to Uganda, it's close to Kenya, it's close to Burundi. And if everyone knows, I think a year or two ago, there was a big thing about Ebola, right? So what makes you think at this point... We can't We've, handle We have prepared ourselves with Ebola, something that surprised us. We've learned so many lessons. Yeah. We now know how to manage it. Yeah. What makes you think we are unable to pivot quickly? And I yeah. think sometimes people underestimate... I'm not saying African governments are great. No. Right. What I'm saying is sometimes the African mindset... You know how we say time moves slow in Africa? <laughs> But there's a pivot way. Who said that though? But it became a thing. It has become a thing. <laughs> yeah, it became a, a thing. But Maybe it's, we didn't have internet one thing, to though. reply to emails. Like, Maybe we didn't have internet to reply to emails. You know. It took Maybe we to... never had network to connect to the phone. So it took <laughs> like, Maybe I don't know how it came to be. But it's a one very thing I love is that yeah. we know how to pivot, mm. and we can pivot quickly. Mm. Um, in any situations, yes, some African countries countries are not doing great in it but at the mm. same time there's still some sort of i don't, I don't know uh, a bank of management 
that right. makes sense that mm-hmm. works mm-hmm. you know for the continent we're in yeah so i guess from my perspective i'm wondering oh I'm sorry uh, i'm wondering in your tenure right now i know you focus a lot on hiv and stuff and i know hiv that's one thing i've got so many family members that are hiv positive mm-hmm. and COVID happened and the same people with weaker immune well, systems yeah. will be more affected honestly my biggest scare was around my hiv positive family members mm-hmm. like i became possessive Worried, yeah. you know trying to don't breathe out. don't lo- don't go to work don't you know breathe. because i'm just like <laughs> as far as i'm concerned you can live with hiv life long life but yeah. if covid is gonna cancel it then that scary. becomes another thing that yeah. becomes a, another thing so yeah. how is the hiv and covid i guess in your realm of expertise balancing that and how do you feel the I mean that's the, I mean going? honestly that's the current fear I've been on a couple of webinars that I've been talking about like actually so because HIV hit the African continent so much mm-hmm. there was this like from like you could argue like 95 and I've done like research on like HIV response in the continent so you could argue like from 95 even till date there's just a lot of money coming into the continent labeled HIV, HIV, HIV. so just HIV, HIV, HIV. So there's a lot of vertical programming. There are Mm -hmm. a lot of HIV clinics. There are a lot of like mom baby clinics for HIV positive, which is great, Mm -hmm. but they're all specific to HIV and they kind of forget all the other causes of disease. So that's its own conversation. But Mm -hmm. also say this over response to HIV, which will probably gradually be the same thing to COVID. There's going to be an overabundance of funding and research and work towards emergent. Um, viruses and infectious diseases in the next 20 years mm-hmm. it, because of what's happening today. So that's the same thing that happened with HIV. But what that has meant is that there's a clear system to respond. Okay. So there's a clear... If I... There's the same reason now I can even self-test for HIV and buy a kit. It's right, the same yeah. reason I can get tested. It's going to that level now. Yeah, it's gone to a level where I can now get tested and be starting my ARVs tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It's gone to the point where if I'm a woman and I'm pregnant and i test pos- positive for hiv there's free medication for me and my yeah. child i guess right yeah, I guess so just... the conversation now is like let's let's let our covid respond kind of like piggyback mm. onto the existing structures of response to hiv because exactly. we already have labs and diagnostics learn, like in our country learn with from the system, system. yeah just so it's to not it's just the, it's, the yes it might be two different viruses but all viruses you need to screen the the approach isn't different for any you know virus or you need to screen mm. people who are high risk or likely you need to test them once they're tested you need to link them to care once they've been linked to care you need to monitor them so that they don't infect other people mm. okay. same yeah. approach for hiv same approach for covid dear bbc okay. that's what's happening <laughs> yeah that's why they're handling it that's very well it's happening right. so it's the same it's the same public health approach so instead of like saying we have a system for HIV, let's create the same system for HIV for COVID. No, you just build that COVID system to align with the HIV system. So you don't have to build two labs. You don't have yeah. to have two trucks take collecting samples. When they go and collect the HIV samples, they collect the samples for COVID tests. Mm. And it's the same process. The same way, you know, 20 years ago, you had to HIV test, you'd get tested and then you come back later. Oh wow! It used to be like that in the nineties. Yeah. And go through the yeah, entire you had to wait because it was a PCR process. at the time. It was yeah. PCR. It was Eliza. Eliza mm. was a new thing, and it was like amazing. I remember going for workshops in high school, like sixteen, seventeen, mm-hmm. and we were doing advocacy to have 
all these medications that were available for adults to be available for children. Mm-hmm. And then it was like a miracle to be able to think that children can be tested as like once you give birth to a child and you want to test, you can now do it within the first six weeks. That wasn't scientifically possible 10, 20 years ago. Oh, so wow. like the science has evolved as we go. So I think what conversations I've listened to have been like, let's not build, reinvent the wheel, mm-hmm. but let's like merge the systems and integrate care. So that it's not vertical and like you're wasting resources and... So do you feel then, then like being someone that's been exposed to the American uh, world Mm -hmm. and even you, Sylvia, you can recognize with that, even for Mm -hmm. me in England, do you feel like there's a, I guess, uh, a standard or I guess a method in a way Mm -hmm. that Western governments sometimes don't acknowledge the science? Yeah, I mean, that's a whole. <laughs> that's a, a whole. That's a very whole class that that we took. But I think it's people have different relationships with science for so many different reasons. And and what I've unfortunately learned is that like, I got into global health and public health because I cared about people and wanted to see people, you know, like get healthy, not die from like simple things. You know, yeah. that for me, that was it. It wasn't about the politics, but unfortunately, it is political. It and is. once you talk about the politics, it goes back to the history. So I think each country, each community has its own history. And that history, unfortunately, impacts how people then choose to decide to have relationships with science. I think and how to act. Right. And how to act yeah. in response. Because it's so funny, like in graduate school, we had to do this whole ethics thing. And we had to do case studies on like, people who are pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine, right? And as, mm. as a Zimbabwean, as somebody from a quote-unquote developing country, global south country, poor country, right? Mm-hmm. Like my mom, she was one of like eight in her family. She lost a, a sister to whooping cough. Oh, wow. Right? Whooping cough? But whooping cough, but this is like so 60s, 70s. Man. This was before vaccine. That was treatable, no? Right. It was treatable, but yeah. it was also preventable through vaccination. Mm-hmm. So when I used to talk to my mom about these things, she'd be like, I would definitely take my kids for vaccination. Right. Right. I understand the value of science mm-hmm. because now my kids don't have to die from measles. Like mm, simple exactly, things yeah. like, right. But, but for people in like, I guess, developing the developing world that we're closer to that history. So we know the value of the science. Mm. People on, in the global north or richer countries kind of like solved this pub, these basic public health problems a long time a ago. A long time like ago. So nobody ago. knows anybody who dies of me, died of measles. A doctor being trained in the US wouldn't even know how to diagnose measles today. Even malaria in England. Or malaria. Yeah, they, don't, they don't know. Because that's because just how far. It. Yeah. It's been eradicated. So that's how far removed it is. Yeah. So to, it then becomes the role of public health to... To constantly, it's hard to remind some somebody. Like right now, we are all going to know COVID. Our children are all going to know COVID because we've been traumatized by it. We've had to do curfew. We've had to live alone. Lockdown, no, right? All of that. So we There's know a baby COVID. Called lockdown somewhere. Yeah, but in your grandchildren, <laughs> your grandchildren will probably be vaccinated so against yeah. COVID at birth. Yeah. So they to tell them they have to wash their hands and wear a mask. Like, they won't what? understand that. Yeah. They're so far removed from it. That's one part of it. Another part is. In some instances, history has damaged people. Like in America, a lot of minorities and outsiders, black people, Latina people, actually have had science work against them. They were mm. used as guinea pigs. You have the Tuskegee yeah. experiments. You have 
black women's bodies being used to further the studies of obstetrics and gynecology, right? Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. these like C-sections, whatever, they're practiced on black women's bodies. Mm-hmm. And we use that science today. Exactly. So pe- people don't trust the system because the system has historically hurt them. Yeah. So those people are not going to be willing to just walk up to a hospital or be part of a clinical trial. I because they will think yeah, you're going to kill us because your government happen, or historically you've been racist yeah. towards us. So I feel like every country has its own relationship with science and public health based on its political history. Mm. Yeah. And that makes it even harder to like enforce public health laws and changes that are beneficial. You know, Telling people you have to wash your hands is good for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh? Last is in Zimbabwe. I won't believe you. Like, why would I believe you? Why? You know, like, you, you, on a very, like, it's really hard to explain to somebody you, when the last time you were forcing me to do something, it didn't work in my favor. You told us we're going to kick out Mugabe and life will be great. It wasn't. Yeah. So now you're telling me I have to stay at home because there's this thing I can't see. Yeah. yeah. That's, it, that's it. Like, why would I it believe you? To it's actually, <laughs> yeah. even like one interesting thing we want to actually know, like right. the differences in like, being in Zimbabwe, being in mm. USA, and then being in Rwanda, I guess we have privileged information to know you've also been to Zambia and <laughs> all yeah. these other beautiful countries and all this stuff. Leave What's the, the difference world, in terms of, I guess, accepting global health initiatives? And I guess at the same time, even at the yes, simple right, level, that I'm a black woman, right? I'm a black woman in all these places, yeah. I think, right? That doesn't... That is a constant. That is the constant here, right? The constant is like I enter in any space. Before I even open my mouth, before people even know I work in public health or whatever, they see my skin color. Yeah. They see my hair. Mm. They already make so many assumptions about me before I even open my mouth. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when I open my mouth, they hear my accent. They make mm-hmm. another level of, of another <laughs> level of, of assumption. And that has so much impact in your career. It has so much impact yeah. in your dating, in your friendships, in the people you even get to be friends with, right? Because, you know, anthropology shows that, you know, people, are, people gravitate towards people they feel they have things in common with. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, you know, the one thing you have in common is that you're both not from that place. <laughs> <laughs> It's really that simple, right? Sometimes you are you're something in common because you're the same hair type, so you need the same hairdresser. You know, so those in I remember when I was in the US, those were my friendships. My friendships right. were a lot of international students, a lot of others because they knew because the- I was an other as well. I also yeah. was coming from. I also yeah. didn't know how to cross the pedestrian oh, wow. crossing. The others. Right. They were that's, all others. We were all. All my friends were point. from like South Asia. We're all like from other places. And then over time, I also then realized that all of my friends were also poor, like from low-income neighborhoods. Like, mm. I didn't even know because I was a scholarship kid yeah. that I was a, at a rich school. I didn't know how much it cost. Colombia <laughs> is damn expensive. It's and so even expensive. my undergraduate. So I remember seeing everybody with, like, MacBooks. <laughs> and um, my funny story is, like, North Face. Yeah. You know the brand North Face? Yeah. So when it started getting cold, I saw everybody with a North Face jacket. I was like, oh, it's cold. There's and probably something get I get North Face. I, I Google North Face. Yeah. I see the prices and I'm like, <laughs> you're like, nah. <laughs> oh. Can't handle the brand. I'm like, so everybody, but then it, it then made me realize, so all of these people can afford North Face jackets mm. in different colors. Mm. I'm like, oh, so I'm poor. That's why you hate so much. I never even like, yes, I was poor, but in Zim, everybody was poor. <laughs> so you never know when you live. I hadn't been exposed to that level of wealth. Yeah. That other people could just have, yeah. not necessarily having worked for it. 
Mm-hmm. And they just did a lot of like in my undergrad, a lot of people were legacy kids. So their mm-hmm. mom went to Bryn Mawr, their grandma went to Bryn Mawr, and their trust fund that locks when they get wow. admitted and start freshman year, they get two thousand dollar checks per week. Yeah. Oh, that's that's right. So those one. are the people are going. They go like Rumbi, let's go to spring break. Let's go to here. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think my the friend education system is so it's strange. interesting, and I had to learn all those things on the fly. Nobody yeah. tells you this, and so I think all the friendships and connections I made were as a result, for the most part, of my identity, of mm. things at that time, things that made sense. In right. places that were predominantly white, I tended to be more mostly friends with non-white people because okay. I was non-white. In places mm-hmm. where a lot of people were rich, I just happened to be with other people who also needed to take the bus home. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah. Because you understand each other. They understood each other. Or even when I was in grad school, I was working like, I was working for Columbia Catering. So all my friends were from catering. After, after our 10-hour shift or whatever would go and hang out after. Right. So those are my friends. Those yeah. became my immediate network. Even though I was part of this larger, like, Ivy League Columbia network, my, the people I grew closer to. I think it's the same, at least mm-hmm. for me, that's been the same in all the other places I go to. It's like I connect with the people who I have things in common with or who can understand some parts of, like, my life st- okay. story as well. That makes sense. That's does, actually, yeah. like, amazing. So Look. besides... They work every big things that you do in the continent. What uh-huh. are the hobbies or what are other Why things do that I you do, do outside of work? And how can people, you know, reach out to you if they want to find you? Well, I'm on uh, these Twitter streets. With you? <laughs> yeah, the Twitter streets. <laughs> I mean, I'm on Twitter way more than I should be. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I I love reading and writing. I read a lot of books, mm-hmm. primarily by African women. Um, so I'm definitely into like African lit and poetry. I've also like been part of a a published anthology. So I write poetry. Which kind of poetry? Well, I'm supposed to be. (laughs) Published anthology. Oh my God. Yes. That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like an anthology we compiled when I was an undergrad. I didn't compile it. I just submitted, but we're Mm -hmm. part of like young Zimbabwean authors writing about different things about our lived experiences or as Zim diaspora at the time. Are you getting any revenues from that? You know, I should follow up with that you guy. Should. You know, get your coin. Yeah. I mean, we all got copies that we sold at the Where's time that was. Where's and I mean, coins? I bagged that, but it was like 20, <laughs> 20, I think we sold the first batch in like 2016. Yeah. yeah. But I haven't followed up since whether it should be on. Um, that's why I, I'm Amazon. not sure on Amazon if it is. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I also just write for myself. I had a blog. I have a blog. It's still live on WordPress. Mm. Um, mostly poetry sometimes continuous prose that mm-hmm. i do write um what else do i do i like to cook we know yeah. you love to cook. yeah i love oh, food i love to cook i love Instagram to eat i love to like i'm a foodie i'm a big foodie i love <laughs> to cook bake nice um and just explore different food places i think that's what i do for fun you said a key yeah. word you said i used to have a blog even though it's live <laughs> so that sounds like somebody that's going yeah. to write you writer's block <laughs> some sort of writer's block no it's a my, what, what's going on i started that blog like 2013 mm. and I, th- I probably operated i think i actually my most recent piece on there is like 2017 so it has been semi-active it was more active 2013 to 2015 and then i just wrote less and less what definitely happened? being in school i think blocks my writing yeah and then like life just, just work went, 
and then will also work yeah life also then happens but i think i also shied away from the blog itself um it's just very sad (laughs) what's so sad about it just the content itself i mean it came out of a very personal your okay it just came out of like a very personal like time in my life and i don't feel those things strongly as much anymore so i don't write about it okay it came a lot of people are like oh your poetry is great your writing is great but it was all very either sad or angry or but both then the thing is, is so it, i was what, able do you feel that it was sad or it's yeah. just because people were commenting nasty things and you thought i do think it was i think what i think when i have emotions and when i have feelings i express myself best on paper it's just and that's my gift like when i sometimes i even sometimes it's not even like published pieces like right now i've been going back to all my facebook posts and insta posts and like downloading those pieces because sometimes i'll be really angry like i remember when the pastor ivan mawari thing in zim yeah i was so angry i wrote a piece on the day that um the whole country was protesting Mm. i wrote a piece and it went viral but it wasn't it wasn't a piece I was just angry. We took my laptop <laughs> and put words on paper. But you see, and things <laughs> go viral sometimes because that's what people relate to right. at that so, moment. Yeah, so I think I'm most motivated to write, I think, when I'm in emo- these emotional states. And I, that's just, it's like almost cathartic and that's how it goes out. Mm. Uh, so I was like, oh, let me try to write about happy pieces. But when I'm happy and I try to write pieces, it's trash. It's not yeah. fun. It doesn't. Nobody relates to it. I think nobody. every writer has uh, something that motivates, motivates them. them. It's right. Like Adele, so for me, right? it's tragedy. Yeah. It's tragedy. It's yeah. politics. It's sadness. It's anger. Especially it's all artists. They right. Channel I channel it into yeah. my work. Yeah. But I think what it's easy, like in natural life, it's easy to express yourself when you're happy. But it's yeah. hard to express yourself when, when you're sad. When you're sad and stuff. So it makes sense when you have a secondary outlet. Yeah. Because you it, relate to so you know? many people. Because I know when you're happy, you know. Right. Yeah. But, but when I'm happy, I don't put. I don't feel like I need to, to journal, journal today and write it. Because it's just glowing in it's your skin. Yeah. yeah. You know everything. Wow. But then sometimes it's hard. But to... I do get angry about some things. I just have been lazy to actually like make them complete pieces and upload them. Maybe that's what I should be. Maybe doing you about. need to because that's what people relate to. Yeah. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Most people don't know how to channel that, so they look for someone who has already, already done it that and, and they read that and express that. it for yeah. them. You're right. That's true. And given that yeah. before, like your posts where I think about Pastor Ivan, I, I know that moment. I know we were actually, all angry. even now we were when all... I think about it, it yeah. wasn't it wasn't the name Fiona on the post, was it? And it wasn't, right? Yeah. It was yeah. something else, but I feel like it's you. Because <laughs> <laughs> you could Because she read said it? so many names that she used to have as okay. a social media handle. <laughs> so it just, it connects. Because remember, the first time even with her, when she followed uh-huh. me, I was like, who is this girl? Yeah, because my Twitter I was is like, anonymous. This girl, People don't I know, know who her. I am on Twitter. I was like, I, was, I, just, I know this girl, but I just don't know where I know her from. Yeah. <laughs> right because i am very vocal on yeah, like vocal on, on critical videos. issues yeah, yeah. so you don't want us to say shout out to your handles for people to follow are you comfortable with that actually i'm, fi- I'm fine i don't think it's it's so much that's fine you can i can shout out my social media handles it's so the reverse the, the reverse is the one that's a little bit more problematic when i've definitely had situations where 
I've gotten into it with like Republicans on Twitter and they came for my life. I fear oh, it for, I actually fear it for my life then. Yeah. Same thing with Zem is like you speak out against the government and people come for you. I don't mind yeah. like people like our age and people like like you and me like knowing my Twitter handle, knowing that it's me behind that handle. I think I'm fine with that. It's just okay. more that on like <laughs> political negative level. stuff. Like, <laughs> so people can reach out to you on your LinkedIn at Yeah, your Fiona, Fiona Gambanga, yeah. Yeah. And see the amazing work that you're doing. And <laughs> yeah. Collaborate and pay you at. Yes, what you're I do. I but do. But then also another thing that we didn't even talk about is the fact that like, can you imagine how young she is? And she's got seven publications. And she's yeah. arguing Probably with me. She's, she's arguing, arguing that with she me. Hasn't. She's but saying she's truth. got three. And I'm like, you got seven, girl. Like, I need to show you right now. You got seven publications <laughs> under your name. Yeah. <laughs> Seven. I, we definitely I, need I a raised, part two I cultured those girls. I cultured those girls. I grazed them. I ran those experiments. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like well, it's amazing. Fiona, we definitely need uh, a part two for this interview. It's okay. I wouldn't mind. I feel like there's so much that <laughs> we still need, need to, to talk unpack. About. I'd love yeah. to do that. Also, shout out to you guys for starting this podcast. Oh, thank you. It's a thank great you. initiative. And thank you for you for know, actually you know to doing stuff. Like I feel like I'm one of those people. Like this is a great idea. This is a great, and then I never actually do anything about it. So it's great yeah. that you are starting this thing, and we get to be part of it through your like innovation and ability to actually you know start something. Yes, <laughs> and just like likewise, it's like women like you that inspire us daily. So it's yeah. important that you know. One reason why we started 55 Safe Spaces is like we could recognize that sometimes we're inspired by women, but we just don't have easy outlook to hear their stories, whether via podcasts, African women, or websites, especially. or Instagram, mm-hmm. or Twitter. But we meet each other naturally, like how we all met. But we just don't have something where we can just hear without meeting each other. So we appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. And, and thanks to Rome for introducing me to you. I don't even, I don't remember how. No, met, actually, Emily. This is all Emily. This is all oh, Emily. Shout out to Emily. Shout out to Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for being together. the master connector, <laughs> yeah, Mis- mistress connector, whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Do you have anything that you just want to share or just want to inspire women what are your closing across remarks? your closing remarks for the women on the continent and abroad? For women on the continent, young women, I would say like, just like, I know it sounds so cheesy to say follow your heart. Mm-hmm. So maybe let me try to find a slightly more intelligent way to say that, but. Like, <laughs> really is follow your heart like go to the things you're naturally drawn to go to the things that like you were saying that make you angry mm-hmm. go to the things that make you sad that you feel passionate about that you can talk about for five hours mm-hmm. right that's actually where your passion is gonna lie this podcast was gonna be five hours so <laughs> right but like that's the thing is like i you don't you like when i go on dates i really i'm like don't ask me about feminism or women's health because i will talk yeah. about it for five hours that's how much i care about it yeah and i want my work and the things that I do to show that. Mm-hmm. So that's your passion lies in, in where you you care about things. Mm-hmm. And then you find your skill set. Because for me, it's like it's passion and then it's skill set. Mm. And your skill set is most valuable in places where you feel something so strongly about something. So keep at it. Keep working hard. And go to the things you're naturally drawn to. That's where your passion lies. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, Fiona. Thank you for having me. And guys, you've got it. You've heard from fiona and i think we need a part two yes definitely two three four five six i'll be back i'll definitely be back (laughs) make sure we we you know 
get this finished okay like, totally <laughs> again this is um 55 safe spaces hosted by sylvia and uh rumbi and we are so grateful for tuning in thank you for the listeners and to fiona for coming over to chat with us today see you 